kind of asked me what it's like to promote the book. And the funny thing about that is uh, most people have been really positive and the folks that have been negative are mostly males that have accused me of lying because they think that I should have just had a desk job. Oh, everybody assumes you're a CIA secretary, like the guy in the FBI, right? Yes, exactly. Welcome back to the live drop. This is your Mad Minute for episode 3-1. My guest is Tracy Walder, an ex-USC sorority girl who joined the CIA, hunted down terrorists, joined the FBI, and uprooted domestic spies, and wrote a great book about it, The Unexpected Spy, available now. We talk about her experiences of uh, writing a memoir, getting it through the publications review board, then a little bit about what she did at the CIA with the early drone program, her operational work hunting WMD purveyors, and to work with the FBI in a counterintelligence case in Los Angeles. And then we get into girlssecurity.org, an organization which seeks to increase the representation of women in national security by building a pipeline for girls and young women through learning, training, and mentoring support, focusing on building a future workforce of women national security decision makers. Begin transmission now. I read your book, and I'm a little starstruck. I, I really loved it. Oh. And uh, your experience <laughs> Wonderful. Your experiences are just phenomenal. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It wasn't a book that you could just sort of skim through. You had to really, it was juicy. There were a lot of interesting perceptions and descriptions and, uh, you know, the story itself of how you went from, you know, USC to where, where you are now. So. Well, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to start out a little bit and say, uh, you know, what's it, there's kind of a two-part question. I guess, what's it like? Um, you say you're someone who's kind of more comfortable at the quiet center of things. What's it like having written and published a memoir? <laughs> it seems to be uh, a little bit, uh, it, it seems like in a way crashing a car against the wall for you. Uh, you know, I think you're right. Um, it, it's part of why I think I waited so long to write it. Um, you know, I, I've been out for a few years and I think it was sort of dealing with you know, kind of the deluge of, of, of great stuff that that's come along um, is something that I really had to mentally prepare myself for. And that took a while. Yeah, well, I'd say your book definitely takes the space on the shelf. What's it been like from your time in, in the CIA and in FBI? You were either hunting or, or going after people and collecting information in real time about other people. I just wanted to know if there was any uh, similarities to collecting information about yourself to write this memoir from the past? You know, that's such a great question. Um, it was interesting. The best thing that I could have done for myself in writing this memoir was working with a co-author. Um, I thought I would just do it by myself. Um, I've, I have some writing experience. I wrote for a few news online newspapers and things like that. But for me, um, and, and maybe it's from being in an environment where, you know, there wasn't sort of open sharing all the time of information. Um, when it comes to myself, I am a woman of few words and don't really get too descriptive in the things that I've done. And so working with a co-author, she was great about, in a weird way, wormholing information out of me. You know, for example, I would be, you know, sort of telling her a story about oh, and the bomb went off and then just sort of move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And she really helped me, you know, engage all of my sort of my senses um, mm -hmm. about it and pull out 
so much more. And I really got to know myself um, in, a, in a very different way. And I, I developed a, a broader sense of confidence, I think, too. Did you feel in any way you were hunting yourself? Yes, I guess I did um, in a little bit of a way. Um, hunting sort of uh, what my true passions are um, and, you know, how I truly felt and processed some of the things that had happened to me. I felt like Larry King asking that question. For that was a great reason. question. That was a Did you feel you were hunting yourself as a hunter? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. You know, I really enjoyed the book. I, I like that, that your choice to keep the redactions in. And it, oh. the effect that it had for me was, you know, this author is really, she's really putting it out there. I mean, she is making an attempt to tell the complete story. And I know it's not her that's redacting it. So it sort of contributes to this feeling that you're a very reliable narrator that I want to listen to. The decision to leave in um, the redactions was, you know, mine and my publishers. It took several tries actually through the CIA. They didn't, you know, deny my book outright. But um, when I first received it back from the Publications Review Board, they had redacted uh, three or four chapters completely, just completely blacked them out, which, you know, obviously that's not very conducive to um, publishing a book. Um, And so about, it took me about three or four more tries um, to get it down to a place where both myself and my publisher felt that you could still make out a story and a narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. from the book. Were there any surprises with what they approved of or what they rejected? Yes, um, a lot. I really had thought that they would have redacted uh, basically the whole chapter that's called The Vault. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, I I thought, you know, I'm going to write this. The worst they're going to do is redact all of it, right? And I fully assumed that that chapter would come back completely redacted. I also um, expected that my chapter on, um, you know, sort of my discussions that I had had with terrorists, I had assumed that that would all be redacted as well. And it was not. And I think part of it was in researching for my book, I went ahead and read almost every book that had been written by someone from the CIA that was approved by the CIA. And then I footnoted it. So when I turned in my manuscript to them, Really, anything that was questionable was already footnoted as having been released. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those chapters, really, they didn't, you know, they didn't redact them in their entirety. There is a chapter, I believe it's called One World. And that thing kept coming back redacted, redacted the whole chapter. And I couldn't figure out why, because it was one of the chapters that was probably the least national security sensitive. But what I realized is it was the name of a statue. And I still, mm. every time I submitted it back to them, the statue's name was in there. And I got I got wise to it, and I took the statue's name out, and the whole thing came back not redacted. So uh, it was it was just very interesting to me what they decided to um, allow me to keep in versus not. <laughs> I have to laugh because in reading this, you know, it's it's spy material. You know, you're kind of it's sometimes you're undercover, sometimes you're you know clandestine, sometimes you're just out in the open, and uh, you're working in different places. And I love this stuff. You know, I realized how much help it is like in a Robert Ludlum book where he puts like, you know, Vienna at the top of the chapter because I couldn't figure out where you were. And it had a, it had an interesting effect. One was I was sort of void of any uh, kind of cultural stereotypes that I was kind of assuming. And I ended up listening to people a little bit more uh, or, or watching your characters a little bit more closely, you know, trying to figure out where I was. It was a really interesting experience as a reader. That's that's really interesting. I never looked at it that way. I think you're absolutely right in that um, 
you really don't have sort of those, any cultural biases that you may have. Um, I think some of them, it's relatively easy to figure out where I was, um, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of by process of elimination, but in others, no, um, it's not. And I, I've, I've come to the conclusion, I, I couldn't put any of the names of the places that I was in. And I think it's because I had traveled to those countries in alias. So mm-hmm. theoretically I was never there. Um, and so I think that's why they wouldn't allow me to include right. the country. That said, I did try to Google that statue to figure out where it was. <laughs> and it what didn't did come it didn't come up and I thought, you you're clever, you guys. We tried. You know, just, you, I have to go to like said I realize oh this would take me a little bit more time. So to figure out where well, that was. I'm glad you tried and couldn't I tried. Out. I tried. My first attempt was like, oh, Google's not gonna work for this one. That's so. that's fantastic. You know, we do have something in common. I I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles, but I think there was a time in my acting career things were going a little slow. And I worked in the locations department, which are the people who, yeah, they're the ones that negotiate with real live people about where we can shoot things. And oh. one of the places where we shot was at a frat house at USC. Oh. <laughs> and this was like the late, I, I did the math and you would have been at USC at the same time. But we shot at a frat house, and I remember, I forget what the movie was, but I just remember negotiating with these guys about, you know, how long we were going to shoot or any damages that were occurred. And the only thing I could pay, the only thing they would take for payment were kegs. Yeah, that's absolutely not surprising. And I'm surprised that they're concerned about any damage that you would have (laughs) accrued, um, simply because those houses are are quite unsavory. Yeah, they're falling apart. I was like, this is an opportunity for you guys to do some major infrastructure (laughs) improvements, you know? (laughs) They're like, no, we'll take two more kegs. All right, fine. But I got to hang out with these guys a little bit. And I, I, you know, I I didn't go to USC, but I remember sitting on the porch and just, uh, you know, they're watching people walk by. And this was a, a fraternity. I don't know if you recognize it or who they are but they were mostly dental students it was the school of dentistry interesting right so but it was right on that row where the um frat houses and you know like maybe delta gamma was as well but we're it was on a friday and they're just kind of walking everybody watching everybody watch back from class and these these kids are sitting there talking you know kind of sizing people up as they're walking by you know as frat boys do and um, one of the first things they noticed when they were talking about was like, wow, did you see her smile? Did you see those bicuspids? Like, no, get her to smile. You know? And they were talking about people's teeth. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, this is, my goodness. It, I mean, people have a different way of looking at the world, you know? Wow. I mean, anyway, that's just by way of kind of doing a little turn here and saying, um, you know, do you find did you find yourself at the time being conscious of that? At that bias, you know, while you were hunting terrorists or while you were um, looking for things in this surveillance video. You mean of a cultural bias or? Well, no, just that bias of, well, I'm looking for this. I'm, this is what I do. I'm hunting terrorists. Oh, that's a flower pot. It's not a shape charge. Um, it depends. Particularly when I was in the vault. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I'm you know, answering your question. So I do apologize if I'm, if, you know, kind of veering off topic a little bit. But um. Particularly in the vault, um, I think what was happening to us was, you know, we were attempting to, I'm trying to talk around this, um, kill people. (laughs) And um, a lot of times they were using things like madrasas, which are schools, um, Mm -hmm. for cover. And so, you know, you're trying to make a decision to discern, is this a child or is this someone that, you know, deserves to be targeted? Um, And I think that became extremely difficult. Um, 
Yeah. And, you know, that's something. And I know that you're former military as well. Uh, well, not as well, but you're former military. And I'm sure you've dealt with sort of the the imprint that that leaves. So I, I think that's where that more came into play was, was mostly in that time. You mentioned um, that was the early D-R-O-N-E program. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm assuming. Perhaps. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for those who can't spell, you're just never going to have to know what I just said. So, <laughs> but I was interested when you mentioned that, and I and I realized this was a very heavy time, and there were some very heavy decisions. And you know, it, this is post nine eleven, and George Bush would visit, and um, you said he visited quite often. Mm-hmm. I had to laugh. I'm thinking, like, what kind of questions did did he ask? You know, it would they were very like basic questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk around it, but it, you know, it was the very it was the first days of that program, really. And, you know, I think a lot of it was more just interest in what we were doing, mm-hmm. what we were looking at, um, and what we were thinking. So there were always basic questions like, what are we looking at? What are, what's the plan? What, do you know what I mean? It was, they were, I just picture, I just picture not, him being almost, I almost, I picture him almost being kind of intrusive, you know, like, so what's that fella doing right there? What's he? <laughs> so what's sometimes he? we get things like that. Um, but I think also, a lot of times when, you know, I, I think he was very respectful when he was in there and realized that the work we were doing was really sort of serious and we didn't have time to almost play like show and tell right. uh, to him. And so I think a lot of times most people that, you know, were at his level that came in were actually quite observant of that and, and really seemed to understand what we were doing and that we, could, we couldn't really waste time sort of engaging in show and tell with them. I, uh, I, was, I was also interested... In how well, first of all, that the um, that the PRB allowed it, but how forthright you were about the events leading up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and how your supervisors kind of warned you about what it was your consumers were looking for. Um, you know, basically evidence kind of tying you know tying the terrorists or tying Zakawi or anybody else to to Saddam Hussein. I guess my question was. Uh, you know, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, but wasn't there any sort of oversight or is it, it was just White House with Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush and Condoleezza Rice just sort of asking these sort of lead in questions? So once our chart was taken, I, I think this is the chart that you're referring to. So once once our chart was taken um, mm-hmm. by that person from the White House, I actually don't know, you know, the thought process that went into the White House. And I don't think any of us even thought more of it, if that makes any sense. Um, It wasn't unusual at that time for, you know, members of the administration, National Security Council, what have you, to come in and ask us for things that they had seen. Um, And so I think for us, we just, we did not think twice about providing that chart. Um, You know, once it was out of our hands, I don't know, you know, the thought process that went behind the administration in terms of, of changing it and presenting it in a false way it was rummy i think it was rummy but anyway you know if you i I can give you my opinion so i colin powell is the one who presented it obviously but i don't believe that colin powell changed it and i read colin powell's book and he talks about the chart i personally think it was probably rumsfeld or at least at the direction of him um but you know what obviously i'm never going to know the real answer to that question Mm -hmm. but that's what um my gut tells me I agree with you. Yeah, you're talking about the chart that was that said. I mean, basically, the, the one you handed in just said terrorists, essentially. It, it said, um, I believe it said uh, 
poison, uh, Al Qaeda's poison network chart. That's what it was. It was terrorists that we believed were part of a poison network that was trying to acquire small scale weapons of mass destruction for Al Qaeda. And it was mm-hmm. just as simple as that. God, I didn't realize that. I mean, Zakari apparently that one lab that he did visit, it was sort of crude, but it was actually in the Kurdish territory. Yes. That's kind of a big leap to assume that the Kurds were working with Saddam Hussein. And I think to assume that they were working with Saddam Hussein is actually not, in my opinion, very rational. Um, Just because, you know, Saddam Hussein had a history of actually not liking the Kurds. You know, and Saddam Hussein had a prolific history of not liking Al-Qaeda and terrorist groups, not because he's a good person. I mean, we know that. But we also know he wasn't a particularly religious person. And it's just not a, a mission that he would have shared. But not to mention terrorists mm-hmm. kind of undermine his power, if you think about it. Yeah, you describe these terrorists pretty well. These are terrible. I mean, you really turn them into real people, <laughs> you know? Well, they are. <laughs> uh, they, they are. And, and I guess after watching them for a while, you, you can start to... I mean, extrapolate like a personality and who they are and what they do and what they're used to doing, I suppose. See, it's part of why I think sometimes people assume, I think sometimes people confuse, you know, operations and espionage work with mm-hmm. being an analyst. And I don't think people realize how much of operations work is understanding people's personalities and knowing them like up, down, right and left. And that, that seems analytical and it is. But there's more to sort of being on the operations side, if that makes any sense. You mentioned your father was a psych- psychologist or a psychiatrist? Yes, my or father instructor. is ex-Navy um, and was a psychology professor. Did you go mm-hmm. through his psychology books when you were a kid and try to figure this stuff out? I, you know, it's, that's, a, that's pretty interesting. I tried to stay, I, I enjoyed psychology, but mm-hmm. I think the problem was, is my father was a professor at um, Chapman University in USC. And I kind of wanted to stay away from it simply because, um, you know, I didn't want to have his friends as professors, which is terrible to admit that that's what I did. So I think I've just always been a pretty good judge of people or at least mm-hmm. try to judge them as quickly. Yeah, as you, know, you want to hear some, this might sound a little weird, but I, I did Google um, floppy baby. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, you know, you know a lot more about it than I'm about to say, but that there are a variety of different causes. But one of the... Um, Side effects, I guess, or behavioral side effects that they mentioned, and this is just simply in a Google page, a Google search, was that they found that with infants, they have a higher level of observation before they act, that, they, that they're so kind of used to making movements that where they, they fail that they end up spending more time watching other people do things before they actually do them. And I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if that contributed to your ability as... That's such... Wow, you... I have to say, you probably have the best... Things questions of any interviewer that I've had. Um, You know, I think that that is something my mom always told me that, you know, growing up, I'd really have to watch and study any kind of teacher that I had um, Mm -hmm. before I would make movements because it takes my brain sort of longer to process it. I'm not trying to say I'm, you know, delayed, but I I mean, it takes my brain longer to process the movement. I think it, it did cause me to be more of an observer because the reality was, is, I wasn't very good at, you know, team sports. I was never the person that was picked first, you know, for dodgeball, handball, whatever. And I think I really had to sort of observe. I was always the observer. And I think because of that, I'm a little, I don't want to say slower, but I take my time um, in getting to know people. And I think that's because I'm sort of really observing them. I'm not judging them. I'm observing them. Oh, big difference. Yeah. You spent a lot of time 
well, you spent a lot of time just, you know, I don't mean to go back to the vault again, but some of the work that you did was kind of using satellite footage and kind of watching people moving around. And I know they can, this footage can actually be angled in. It's not always just simply top down, but I'm just wondering like creatively or visually in your imagination, one, did you sort of dream from that point of view, (laughs) you know, or, and did you also kind of create your own, um, you know, kind of boots on the ground point of view from that information? Probably a little bit of both because later I was boots on the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, but I really think being able to see things from that vantage point helped me when I was boots on the ground, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense at all, because um, I think it allowed me to sort of have this dual perspective of things um, that not everyone gets because you're usually only doing one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually found that to be extremely useful. Was it different from what you expected once you finally got there in the ground? No, I don't believe so. There is definitely more sensory information, but I think that I had become so um, familiar with that particular country that I knew what to expect, at least on the ground. So it wasn't this complete culture shock. So I'm talking with Tracy Walder, author of The Unexpected Spy, from the CIA to the FBI, her secret life taking down some of the world's most notorious terrorists. I've got a bunch of questions, and I could go on for a while, but I I want people to read this book. So I'm going (laughs) to probably just kind of push this interview to get people to to pick up this book, because it's definitely a wonderful read. What I'm also fascinated with is your transition into being a teacher, but how, how that's something you've always wanted to do. You mentioned in your book... That something that I, that kind of struck me, where you felt a certain compassion for the vulnerability of the government buildings in the wave of the Oklahoma bombing, obviously for the people inside as well. Uh, you know, in, in in teaching and trying to teach that the world is connected and that we can play a role, and women, especially young girls, can can play a role in protecting our national security. But how can you you teach that idea of of nationhood or a nation being being vulnerable? to children or to younger students. You mean the idea of just being an American? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty divided time that we're living in right now. I, I just think that that would be something that would be, that would be a challenge to, to teach to students. It's like, why protect this? Or why, why should I do this? Or why should I care about national security? You know, I think that's a great question. I think, I think at a, at a point where maybe underestimating our kids a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, because every teenager that I talk to um, seems interested and seems to care. Now, I realize caring about national security and foreign policy is is somewhat of a privilege, if that makes any sense, um, because you you have to feel secure in the environment that you're in, right? You have to feel like you know your next meal is coming from, and all of those things, because there's different issues that different people um, care about. Um, but I think it's the idea of teaching kids about globalization. I think you have to start as basic as that mm-hmm. and understanding that we're, we're all connected, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Um, How do you and, teach that? Yeah. So one of the things that I do um, is I've started adding a, a unit on domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think students have, I guess, sort of taken to that. Um, and then I connect the domestic terrorism and actually compare it with Al Qaeda and the things that they've done. And I take them through um, the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map. And they have a hate map activity that you can go through uh, with students. And that seems to really, we we look at our state 
Um, and we, we look at, you know, the terrorist attacks and the, the threats to our, to sort of our homeland. And that seems to get them at least starting to question things a little bit. Another thing that I do for students is I'll take, you know, really complex foreign policy issues. Like, for example, when we had the Boston Marathon bomber, mm-hmm. um, a lot of my students were really confused about sort of where he came from and what his what their connections were to terrorism. So what I've always done is I've done, you know, like Boston Marathon bombing explained in five PowerPoint slides or less. And I package those and I send them out to my students. Um, and they have really taken to those because it's a quick way for them to almost get like a primer um, on the issues that are going on. Um, you know, another thing that I, I work with girls security and we do war gaming um, with students. So they really like the hands-on activities because they get to be the decision makers in that. Oh, um, right. And that's something that really sort of sticks with them. Oh, it sounds like you got a pretty engaged group of students. Yes. They what do. Is- um, so I've taught in both public and private. And what I will say is that in both of those instances, kids have been interested in national security. A lot of times, you know, I'll get, oh, this is just a private school. You have time, you know, for the kids to care. But they felt that way at the public schools that I taught at as well. I'd imagine, gosh, these kids, they they all they've known is we've been at, essentially been at war since they've been born. Right. I mean, these kids weren't alive during, you know, September 11th, so which is really strange to think about, but true. I guess it's just an off question, but not necessarily how do you you teach that. But what's the moment where they where they realize, oh, that's what that was like or that's what that must have been? I mean, it just seems strange that people are young enough that they haven't experienced that. (laughs) I guess guess that's what I want to. Well, I think therein lies the problem. I'm not sure that they're going to ever understand exactly what it felt like, you know, on that day, at that moment, at that time. I don't think they will. Right. Because they weren't there. But all we can do is teach them about it. Um, We can't, what I'm noticing a lot of times is it's not in a lot of, September 11th is the teaching of it, is not in a lot of high school curriculums. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really bad um, because, you know, we're getting farther and farther away from it. And we're just going to sort of forget that -hmm. it happened and what the impact of it was. That was a wonderful chapter of yours where you describe, you know, going to the Starbucks downstairs and what you wore and then, you know, turning on the television It's weird that you remember all those little minutia things of that day, right? They're so unimportant, but you remember them. Wow, those are the things that sort of tether me to like a human experience, really. Now I sit on the board of directors of uh, uh, something called Girls Security, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that gets national security curriculum to girls nationwide, both in public and private schools. Could you sort of explain what that... CI or counterintelligence investigation is like for somebody who's, you know, for like a, basically a couple who's living domestically in the United States. I mean, how, how do you how do you go about watching them or investigating them? So the Thai and Chi Matt case um, had been going on for a little while. Um, it was really the kind of the center of it was was Chi Mac. Um, he was Chinese um, and came to the United States gosh, in the late 70s, early 80s. So he had been in the U.S., I mean, for decades at this point and become a citizen. And he was working at a company in Downey, California. And at that company, they were producing radar cloaking technology for our nuclear class of submarines, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, could potentially be a great thing for us. But he took that technology and gave it to the Chinese. CI investigations notoriously can take a long time, really, because it's spies trying to catch other spies. And you really have to be meticulous. 
um, about the case that you are building. And some of the things that you have to do are maybe less savory than one would think, but I found very interesting, um, you know, we're dumpster diving. Oh, right. Yes. And so, you know, your trash is public once it sort of hits that sidewalk. So I'd have to go in the back of trash trucks and and dig for their stuff. Also surreptitious entries um, where you send them on a cruise um, and then go into their house while they're gone. So I kind of got to do sort of the whole gamut of techniques, I guess, during the course of that investigation. And um, they've since been tried and and convicted. I believe Mac is serving something between 20 and 25 years in prison. Um, so I, I think he'll probably die in prison. I talked to some people who did some intelligence collection in Europe during the Cold War, and they really don't like to talk about their dumpster diving. But really? <laughs> but it, yeah, but it seems maybe, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, but it seems like that would be just a really rich source of intelligence. Like what kind of stuff can you find out from people's garbage? See, I think I agree with you, actually, in that um, I think maybe they didn't perhaps like it because, you know, it's dirty. <laughs> yeah, they haven't done that in a James Bond movie yet. That's yes, what, um, it's dirty. It's certainly not sexy, right? You know, it, it doesn't sell in movies or things like that. Right. Um, but, you know, really people's trash, it's no different than when I was at the agency in terms of tradecraft going through someone's pocket litter, which – you know, I think, again, people have sort of this misconception of spies, right, and you know, crashing through windows and those kinds of things. But really, part of our tradecraft is going through someone's pocket litter, which is just the junk you have in your pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, you can find out quite a bit of stuff from that. Um, and it's the same with trash. I mean, that's how um, Chimac was ultimately found, was his tasking instructions um, were folded up in the trash. Um, okay, he didn't destroy yeah. it. Um, he didn't destroy them properly, and we put them back together, and we found them. And you got them. Yep. So you've had an amazing career, and I just personally wanted to thank you for, I mean, first of all, your service. Well, thank you and for your service as well. You were um, in the first Iraq War, is that correct? The first Gulf War. Anyway, also I want to thank you for writing this book. I think it was fantastic, and um, it really put me on the spot, and it put you know my boots on the ground in some places that I, I've never been before, and I wanted to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate your service as well, Mark. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was fun talking to you. It was great talking to you, too. You really asked great questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for being on the live drop. Oh, no problem. That was my talk with Tracy Walder, author of the book The Unexpected Spy, co-writer Jessica Anya Blau. Uh, the book is available now. I highly recommend it. She's also a founding board member, along with CIA legend Gina Bennett, of Girls Security. More information can be found at girlssecurity.org. Uh, go to the show notes at thelivedrop.com for more and the transmission.